You're listening to Proselytize. Or Proselytize. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Proselytize or Apostatize podcast. I'm your host Titus, joined as always by the Russell. What is up, David? Well, lots up, man. A lot. I'll tell you right now, I'm doing this in no AC. <laughs> yeah, your AC went out, huh? Yeah. Yeah, so if you see me start sweating, it's not because I'm nervous. Promise. Well, you're, you're not you're not debating an atheist, so there's no reason to be nervous. Although, yeah. although I know that debating an atheist is, doesn't make you nervous, you you totally own them, of course. Yeah, yeah, sure. Now we're on with the destroyer of atheists today. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We are joined today by none other than Michael Jones from Inspiring Philosophy, which is a YouTube channel that has over a hundred thousand subscribers. He's debated. Some of the biggest uh, atheist names. He's even debated Kent Hovind. Isn't that right, Michael? Yeah, that's right. I debated Kent Hovind back in January. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of, of great videos that he makes on YouTube covering just different apologetics and, and that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, thanks so much for coming on and, and being willing to answer some of our questions today. Yeah, thanks for having me. No, no problem at all. Yeah, so we just wanted to know a little bit, like, how, how did you get started with apologetics? What kind of piqued your interest in all that? Uh, it's probably just something that's always been an interest for me back when I was in probably even a Christian, just answering these types of questions. I've always been interested in history. I've always been interested in uh, different scientific discoveries, philosophical questions. So I think it's just kind of like the way I am. Uh, so when I, I, I when I became a Christian, it was from reading people like C.S. Lewis and other apologists as well, and looking at the arguments they were giving. So that's kind of how I got into it. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so you you didn't grow up Christian then? Well, I did, but I grew up in like a very like young earth creationist church, rapture church, that kind of thing, and it really turned me off early on. But at the same time, I didn't want anyone to know because I saw what happened to people in my church that kind of went that way is like yeah. they got like people got like very like passive aggressively like hey i got you a cool book to read or like that kind of thing and I, I was just kind of like <laughs> leave me alone so like i still had to go to church my mom still made me go and from there it was like a long process of getting me back into it and you know eventually when i came back into it it wasn't it, i was not the same person i was when i was being raised as a christian yeah you know, that you know, that that reminds me of something. You know, when I first started listening to you, um, it's been about a year now, um, I came across you when I was looking for something on oral culture. And you had this, like, cool little quip, and this little video was, like, 15 minutes long, I think. And it was like, I was like, wow, man, and that's how I got in, into you. And then, then it was awesome because I then heard you debate the godless engineer who I was kind of like watching his videos at the time. And I was like, he debated mythicism and you gave this really cool case for Tacitus. And I was like, dude, I need this because I'm doing a, I'm doing Tacitus next. So it, it got me thinking and, and how you do your videos. I appreciate because you give sources, which is, you know, you don't find that often. And 
I looked into it and, and I, you know, I wrote this beautiful piece about, you know, Tacitus too. And it was just like, wow, you know, and your video helped me with that. So again, I appreciate all the, all the ministry works you're doing, but there is one thing I had to ask you because I heard something you're, you're talking, I think you were talking to Braxton Hunter and you're talking about Kent Hoven and you're talking about like used to debate people with his arguments on MySpace. Yeah, no, that's true. That was, uh, so when I became a Christian, I got invited to some Bible study, and it wasn't a Bible study. It was they were going to watch a debate between Ken Hovind and Michael Shermer, and this was back in when I lived in Delaware all those years ago. And Michael Shermer is a horrible debater. Ken Hovind is a really good debater. So I left thinking Ken Hovind won, and so I thought, well, you know, let me check out some of his stuff. And so I watch his seminars, all of them, even the crazy ones. Well, they're all crazy, really. And I just sort of, you know, absorbed a lot of what he said. And then I thought, well, let me take these arguments and go out and start debating. And didn't really do that well because a lot of what Ken Hovind says is lies. I mean, he lies a lot. He doesn't – when he talks about carbonating, he lies about that. When he talks about rock layers, he lies about that. So I got creamed. And so, yeah, it was uh, – then that was another issue in my life when I was struggling with my faith and wondering if that was real or, or if, you know – but, you know, I eventually I think I found Hugh Roth, Hugh Ross and other – uh, different people, and I was in that camp for a while, and then I eventually even moved more to like the theistic evolutionist camp. So it was a long process for me. Yeah, uh, you know, one thing that you, you said, the, the, one the thing that stuck out to me the most, and this is kind of funny, is the MySpace thing. Because you don't <laughs> look a day over like you don't look you don't look a day over twenty five, and I'm thinking, dude, this dude is not as old as I am. There's no way. So like, <laughs> dude, am, how old are you? Come on, I am thirty four. Thirty-four. Okay, I was so born still in not 1985. Yeah, I was born in 1985. Yeah, I have nice. one of those really those faces that just like when I was in high school, like everyone thought like I was still like in middle school or elementary school. And <laughs> my vo my voice still cracks when I talk, <laughs> so people still think I'm young. I, I like I had to go to like I go to college campuses sometimes for work, or I'll go to the University of Arizona just to do research there. People think I'm a student. Just there, like you know, a freshman or something. I've been told I'm a freshman in college. <laughs> I'm thirty. So, so I'm not the only one. Then. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah, so so like, how did you get? How did you get doing the actual YouTube channel? How did you get into that? Uh, well, at the time, I just got out of college for video editing and cinema and that kind of stuff, and I I didn't couldn't get a job right away. It took about six or seven months to get a job. But I had a temporary job where I just worked security at nights. And basically my job was to sit there and every hour make a two-minute walk around. So I'd have like 58-minute 58, 58 intervals where i just sit there. And I just decided I would start I, – I, there was a lot of atheist BS online that I was just sick and tired of, of seeing. So I was like, I'll start doing some videos on stuff I find interesting. And I'll do about 10 or 12, and then I'll call it quits. Because I, I can use them in debates I get into. And then I can just refer people to the videos. And I won't have to worry about you know, won't have to worry about repeating myself constantly. And then it just – people asked me to do a couple more. And then it just kind of kept going. And so here I am now. That's nice. awesome, man. Yeah, and like I said, man, it's, it's a great – it's a great uh, – it's a great channel, man. And, and it helps out a lot. Um, I, I've been investing in, in students for about a year now. And uh, we had a – we had a – agnostic come into our our uh, circle and he explained to us opened up stuff like that and you know i've been investing in the evangelistic and apologetic method into the students and immediately when he said agnostic 
their wheels got turning. And it, it's just good testimony to see them start thinking. And then they started asking them questions and using the stuff I taught them. And that was just, that was, it, it, it's a good testimony. I think apologetics is really important. And what you're doing is absolutely vital for Christians to know why they believe what they believe. Yeah, it is absolutely important because that is how the early church preached. They did not preach on feelings or letting Jesus into your heart. They're, they're, they preached on evidence. This is how Paul did it. He said, we have the witnesses. I can show you in the scriptures how Jesus you know, fulfilled them. These types of things. You know, it says, uh, I believe it's in Acts 17, that the Jews and Barra were more noble because they searched the scriptures to make sure Paul was telling the truth. So mm-hmm. apologetics is evangelism. There's no difference. And I, when people think of a different thing, they, they don't understand what it means to be a Christian. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so it's not the presuppositional approach then, huh? Oh, God, no. no that's, that's, <laughs> I hate that's that approach. Uh, have you ever debated a, a pre-supper on apologetic approach? I don't know if I want to pull my hair out, so no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we hear you. We have we have a regular atheist guest that comes on, and and he he deny he'll never he said he'll never debate a presuppositionalist. Oh, He's I made that clear him. to us several times. Yeah, me either. Me either. I don't blame. So, so Titus, I noticed that you had some questions about you had a question about the New Testament you wanted to ask. Yeah, yeah. I, Kind of jumping in here, uh, I was going to sort of play the devil's advocate and, and ask the skeptic questions, but not because I'm trying to deny my faith or apostatize, um, but rather because when, when I ask the really hard questions and get really good responses, it builds my faith, you know, and I'm thinking if there's other Christians out there they probably thought these questions, and if they can hear good responses, and even for the skeptics who are are listening, uh, so that that's why I want to, and and I'll, I'll probably even push back as we go, just so I can get the best answers uh, as possible. Um, so starting off uh, with, with the canonization, like how we can actually trust the Bible is true, and for me that question becomes the stickiest when I get to. Uh, the epistles, and and we talked about this in a previous episode. David and I did, and and the reason is, the reason why I think it hinges kind of on the epistles is because you know Jesus said that the scriptures cannot be broken, and of course he was referring there to the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament as we call it, and mm-hmm. so to me it's not a big deal. Uh, the Old Testament isn't as big deal because it you know isn't necessarily as authoritative over our lives anyways. Uh, and the Gospels are basically narrative, and I think there's good arguments to be made for the historical reliability of these narratives, right? And but the question to me is, how, where, where, and when did Jesus give his apostles the authority to write letters that would eventually become part of the canonized scriptures? And and you know, even with the process of how the early church began recognizing it and, and sort of that whole process. It's one thing to kind of sit back and say, God wanted us to know the truth, and so by his spirit, he just, you know, ordained the right books to end up in the Bible and, and guided the early church to decide that it was okay to add books to the Bible. That I mean, I, I can do that, but that seems to be sort of, you know, relying on the, the definition of faith that atheists hate, you know. Uh, so I'm wondering if you can sort of, address that a bit well the apostles didn't know to be honest they didn't know they were writing scripture at the time 
uh, same with Isaiah. I mean, he probably didn't know. He would have looked at himself as like a, a peon compared to Moses. And then Paul would have looked at himself as a peon compared to Isaiah. That's not how God works. God does not just, you know, appear to someone. It rarely happens in the Bible where God just says, I will use you. Most of the people who are writing don't realize God is going to work through them for magnificent ways. And that's something we realize you know, after the fact. It's always kind of looking back. So we need to keep that in mind. We also have to remember the canon of the New Testament we have now didn't really show up till about 367 AD. It's the, basically the canon of Athanasius the Great. So about that is when we actually get all the books we have in the Bible without a, including extra ones. <clears throat> so, you know, we don't include Shepherd of Hermas or the letters of Clement. So, you know, you'll get the books that we basically have in earlier canons, but they may include one. They may exclude Revelations. They may have excluded like Second Peter, that kind of thing. But, you know, for the most part, every canon had the four Gospels, every canon basically had most of Paul's letters, that kind of stuff. It wasn't like a, a huge debate, like people were wrestling over Thomas or something. That's just BS. Yeah. So it, it's a long process to get there. And what they were doing around this time, or what they were doing in the early church, is they were saying, we need to get the documents together that are the closest to Jesus and the apostles so that we can have what the faith was. So they had basic rules, like, you know, if this person was a disciple, or if they were a disciple of the disciple, we will include their works. That's why they didn't ultimately include the shepherd of Hermas, because it wasn't close enough to Jesus and the apostles. Mark was a disciple of Peter. We can include that. Paul, uh, you know, was... a uh, worked with the early church. He would have been like a disciple of Peter and uh, James by his own admission. You know, he learned from them in his book of Galatians. He mentioned that type of thing. And he also had a special appearance of himself from Jesus. So, you know, he kind of, they kind of looked at him as all, as also being a direct disciple of Jesus in that regard since he had his own appearance. So they looked at works basically for that. And so they wanted to make sure they were close enough. Uh, so in, in all honesty, the early church was quite inclusive. And what they picked, because they included all four Gospels. They included as much as they could from the first century. But what they were trying to do is they were trying to get as many books as they could that would basically lay out the faith of what was handed down to them from Christ himself. So Christ had his apostles who he talked through, and they wrote some books, and some of their disciples wrote some books. And so they basically collected as much as they possibly could and said, here's our faith. This defines everything. Sure, in some of Paul's letters he mentions you know, bring me my cloak and uh, say say hi to this person over there for me. I mean, but the point was, I mean, Paul just thought he was writing letters, but he had uh, was he was led by the Holy Spirit to write very important things that the early church used to preach and practice the faith. And so that's basically how we get the New Testament canon as it up today. That's basically it in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. So, w why do we conclude that the canon is closed then? <clears throat> Well, because all the apostles are dead. <laughs> it's like we can't yeah. add extra works into there because, you know, John died and all his disciples died. And so did Peter and all his disciples died. There, there was some debate, like, can we include Barnabas? You know, Barnabas was a disciple of the early church. You know, he would have worked close with, uh, you know, the, the, the 12 apostles. But, I mean, we're not really sure if that work goes back to him. It has some things that seem to contradict the other works that we know to be authoritative, like, you know, the Gospels or, like, the letters of Paul. Same with, like, the letters of Clement. We could possibly have included, like, Clement of Rome, his letters, but some stuff is an issue. He kind of talks about the phoenix as if it's a real animal, and that's, that's not true. Uh, so, you know, there were some issues, and basically we got the books that we knew were authoritative and went back to the early church. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 
um, rest, a bunch of other Paul's epistles and whatnot. And then there was some debate over things like, well, did Hebrew, did Paul really write Hebrews or who wrote Hebrews? Uh, is second Peter, does that really go back to Peter? How about second and third John? What about Revelation? Those were really the books that were up for debate in the early church. And the reason was, is they just wanted to make sure they really did go back to the early church that was there. And so basically the idea was like, well, second Peter, for example, uh, there, there are some arguments that could go back to, to Peter. There are some arguments that couldn't, but it confirms the faith that was already taught within the other rest of the New Testament books. So we'll include it because it helps to add extra commentary on important issues. Yeah. So you know, it was a, it was to be clear, it was a detailed, long, complicated process. A lot of thought went into it. It wasn't just willy nilly like we're gonna take that one and give me another dart. We're gonna take that one. Like they weren't yeah. picking and choosing like willy nilly. Yeah. So you're saying, and, and I think it is clear from the New Testament that the apostles had a level of authority that we don't. However, is there a clear line between the level of authority they had and the ability to write what would become scripture? Like, do you believe that Jesus gave them a, that level or that amount of authority? Uh, well, I mean, he did. Know, we, we don't I mean, have it did. recorded where he said, you know, you guys have, a, he did say you have authority to, to make disciples, but he never said, and, and by the way, you're going to write some letters that will become part of the scriptures. Well, he did say, I think in John 14, that you will do works greater than me, for example, but we also weren't at Pentecost. So we didn't have the Holy Spirit come upon us with the speaking of tongue incidents. So the Holy Spirit would have been like, they had this supernatural experience where the Holy Spirit was directly guiding them in a lot of ways. And so they have that thing. So I would more or less go to Pentecost and say, that's why they're authoritative, because they had the Holy Spirit come upon them at Pentecost. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you would see that as a greater outpouring than what believe, modern believers have? Yeah, I think I, for the same reason I would look at Moses and say he, he had a better authority on a lot of these things because he would have been on a mountain talking with God directly. Yeah. It, likewise, at Pentecost, they had the Holy Spirit come upon them directly. That hasn't happened to you or myself. We basically have to go off the teachings that have been handed down to us and look for evidences where it is, like New Testament reliability or the resurrection argument, but we don't have uh, direct inspiration from the Holy Spirit himself in that kind of regard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dave, is there anything you want to add or ask? Well, no, I, you know, just piggybacking off that, I mean, you see several times in Scripture where, where the apostles speak in authority. So they speak as if they do have that authority to make Scripture, you know, and, you know, like you said, you have uh, people talking about Paul, you know, and, and how he just basically backing up his authority in that aspect. So, yeah, he had a special appearance as well. On the road to yeah, Damascus, absolutely. So. And, you know, I look at someone like Luke, for example, who was a Gentile, but he worked very closely with the apostles, of the early church, and he was trying his best to be a historian and write down what was handed down to him. And because he had such close connections, he could pass down what Peter said or what Paul taught him, these kinds of things. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, David, you had a question about the Old Testament, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I think this is good good to get in the Old Testament. I know you're in the Old Testament now. So. Um, oh, am I but ever? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm not big on, I, I, you know, I just never studied much in the Old Testament. I, I, you know, I rely heavily on the New Testament. I swear, I, my that's my field, basically. I study the New Testament all the time. But uh, mm -hmm. I had a, a person talk about the documentary hypothesis. 
and I didn't know how to respond to him. So I was hoping that maybe you could give some insight into what that is and, and whether, you know, it's a good argument or, or is there a good response for it or anything like that? Yeah, it's a crappy theory in my view, honestly. I'm sick and tired of hearing about it. Uh, is there value to it? Sure, there is value to it. I don't – but he, basically the documentary hypothesis is, is someone looked at the Pentateuch uh, about 100 years ago as a scholar, and he basically said, hmm, in this passage, God is referred to as Yahweh. But in this passage, he's referred to as Elohim. Maybe these were different sources that were put together. So he put forward this idea that there was originally a J source. These people worshipped a god called Yahweh. And there was an E source, people who worshipped El or Elohim. And, and then there was also this priestly material written by priests that were much more structured and more sophisticated that had their own priestly ideas to it. Then Deuteronomy as well was its own source as well. So you have the JEPDs, the four sources. Yeah. There's a lot of problems with that. I don't subscribe to the documentary hypothesis in its pure form. Most scholars don't because – you know, the e, take the e-source. This is the weirdest one of all because it's really hard to define what an e-source was because you'll see sometimes scholars going through like, okay, the, this verse, the first three words are an e-source, then it's followed by a j-source, and then it cuts back to the e-source. It's like this is getting a little ridiculous. Like the, the way they sort of try to, to do it, they sort of – they're cutting up – sometimes just taking a couple words from a verse and then saying this is an e-source. It's really hard to define. And furthermore, people like Kenneth Kitchen have looked at things like the Amarna letters, or Richard Hess has looked at Sumerian texts and says, well, a lot of these texts do use different names within the same sentence for their own gods. The, the Pentateuch fits in with that same cultural context. They didn't just use one name for their gods all the time. So the Pentateuch fits in it with well. They'll call them Elohim, El Shaddai, El Olam, you know, El, just El or El Elyon at times. So this idea that, you know, these were different sources. It doesn't really work in that way. Um, the documentary source still does have value, though, in its un, in its basic form, because a lot of the stuff when we read it, it does appear older than some of the narratives. So, like a really obvious example is something like Exodus 15. It's the Song of the Sea, the Song of Moses. If you read it, it's very archaic in how the Hebrews worded. It's sort of like today. If we were to read the song, Be Thou My Vision, you know, it uses a lot of these and thous and theys. And we'd be like, okay, this wasn't written within the 21st century. It obviously goes back to a much older time. The poems, a lot of the poems like Psalm 29, Psalm 24, Judges 5, uh, Numbers 23, Numbers 24, Exodus, or Exodus 15, a lot of those show that kind of markers. So they look much older. Um, I don't think that's much of a problem, though, because... As you go, you're going to update the narratives. The Hebrew or the language that Moses speak is not the same thing that the Jews are going to be speaking during the Babylonian exile. For the same reason, we don't speak the same English that was spoken a thousand years ago. It's, it changes over time. And as you do, you're going to update the narratives. What you might keep are some of the older songs as they were in their poetic form, like Be Thou My Vision. Because you like the way it has a ring to it, but you're not going to talk that way. So you may be giving this, the story of the Exodus, and then you want to include this old song that goes back to Moses, and you're going to keep it in its archaic form, perhaps. You know, that's the kind of thing. So I think the documentary hypothesis has value in that it clearly some of these things were updated for a later audience, just like the King James was updated with the new King James, because no one talks like that anymore. I think that's the same thing that happens with the Pentateuch. And so it, there is these ideas that it was updated over time, 
they added, uh, you know, updated references. Like, for example, in Genesis, uh, I believe it's 11, it says, Abraham left Ur of the Chaldeans. Well, the Chaldeans weren't around in the Middle Bronze Age when Abraham lived. They came about much later, but obviously a later author is saying, you know, it's like Ur of the Chaldeans. It's like if I said, you know, the Dutch founded New York. Well, they didn't. They founded New Amsterdam, and then we changed it to the name of New York. So they keep that in mind, kind of like a nutshell of what, you know, basically the documentary process is, what its problems are, but what, where its merit is and how it can still help us. Yeah, awesome, awesome. You know, you, you said something very important there, and I just listened to the video today, the cultural context. And I know I didn't ask you this, but maybe you can just you could just highlight how important it is, even in Old Testament times, because— uh, one of our questions is, how do you justify the destruction of the Canaanites and the Canaanite nations? And just explain why the understanding, even in the New Testament, the cultural context. I've been telling people for years that you have to understand the history of the culture and who Jesus is addressing to to make sense of some of the things Jesus says, like nonviolence. Yeah. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like, it's like, for example, Jesus talks about how, like, you know— this generation will not pass away until these things come. And a lot of skeptical scholars like Bart Ehrman will jump on that and go, uh-huh, see, Jesus thought the end of the world was going to happen in his lifetime. And I could just refer to someone like John Dominic Crossan, who's not a Christian. Or he says he's a Christian, but he doesn't believe in the resurrection or any of the important things that make you a Christian, whatever. Ridiculous. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> that's not what Jesus was talking about. That et, et Eschatology to the Jews is a little different than eschatology is to us today. Jesus was of an apocalyptic prophet, but he's more or less talking about the end of the temple age and ushering in a new age for the earth. And if you look at Jesus in like the Olivet Discourse, in light of prophets like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, they do some of the same stuff when they talk about prophecies over like Adam or Egypt or even Judea. They'll be like, you know, like God is going to, you know, roll Adam up like a scroll and the sun will not give light and the moon shall or the earth shall mourn. I mean, like places like Jeremiah 4. Okay, this is not – if you read it literally, it sounds like the end times, like the stars are going to fall from the sky in Isaiah, or God will come down and knock and you know knock over the idols of Egypt. Okay, this is just a Jewish apocalyptic ways of saying God's going to get you. You know, judgment is coming to you. You know, it's, you know hell is going to freeze over, guys. You know, we don't mean it literally, neither did they. So when Jesus talks about, you know, this all of a discourse, I look at that and I go, this is Jewish apocalyptic language talking about what's going to happen in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and the Jews were scattered and they, you know, God brought judgment upon them as Jesus said was going to happen. He just describes it within the cultural context of that day. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Good. Thanks. Yeah, that, that leads us into our, our next question. So speaking of the Old Testament, one of the things that bothers me the most is the destruction of the Canaanite nations, and probably especially so because... I'm an Anabaptist. That's why David threw in that little joke about nonviolence. Um, and so I, I don't dig violence at all. And it, it really bothers me a lot, you know, to read some of those, those texts. I don't know. Are, are you familiar with Greg Boyd's explanation of that? No. Okay, so I, he, is, he is some kind of – I haven't been convinced by it. But, I mean, the long and short of it is that Israel just misunderstood God. You know, which you kind of have to throw out the authority of Scripture, at least the authority of, of the Old Testament narrative in that case. Um, but, you know, I, and I, I've read, he has a, a scholarly work called The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. I, I, I listened to his 
popular version called Cross Vision. And I, I wanted to believe in it, but I wasn't fully convinced. And so I'm just wondering, you know, how, how you address that question. I'm, I'm sure skeptics have brought it up ad nauseum in, in discussions with you. So, so kind of how do you account for that? Well, the first thing I would note, uh, this is, I would answer this in two parts. First, you don't understand the cultural context of what's going on in there. Uh, this is, again, more apocalyptic language. And I can give two books by Paul Copen, Did God Really Command Genocide? And Is God a Moral Monster? Where this is covered in, in detail. A lot of this is sort of like, you know, when we say like, you know, the football team A annihilated football team B. I mean, they wiped the floor with them. We don't mean it literally. You see a lot of the same thing in Egyptian stilles or in Assyrian conquests or in Sumerian and Babylonian conquests. It's this idea, you know, that they utterly annihilated them. They left none alive that breathed. They, they look, you know, there were none left standing. This kind of language is in that as well. But, you know, that's not really what happened. A lot of times they just won a battle and they took back a lot of slaves and that kind of attitude. So the, the language is just used in that culture to sort of say that, you know, we just utterly wiped them out and destroyed them. And if you actually read Joshua, there, that, there would make contradictions there. Because like Joshua 23, Joshua 24 talks about all the people still among you. You know, that you still have to deal with these, still these people among you, still those people among you. It says, you know, that the the tribe of Judah didn't get rid of all the Jebusites in Jerusalem. And so it's like they obviously didn't utterly annihilate all the Canaanites if they still were talking about people being there. The yeah. book of Judges opens up with saying, who's going to go up and fight the Canaanites for us? Okay, well, they're still there. It's like they didn't all get annihilated. So you have to think of it like that. It's, it's typical apocalypse, it's, it's typical hyperbole that you would see in, you know, footmost the third stilles or Ramesses the second stilles. The other thing you really think in mind is these were not good people. People, you know, people tend to think of like, I think a lot of skeptics kind of give me this idea that you know, these peaceful Canaanites just minding their own business and Yahweh sending in these bloodthirsty savages to murder them. You don't know the culture. Stop pretending. I mean, look, so for example, Richard Hess talks about there's a lot of archaeological evidence of um, infant sacrifices happening there. Uh, pretty gruesome stuff. Uh, this is another good book, Daily Life in Ancient Mesopotamia. Talks about the horrible treatment of women. A lot of times, uh, the Sumerians or the Babylonians, the Assyrians would conquer a town or a city, and they would take, they kill all the men, and they take the women and children back as prisoners to turn them into slaves. And a lot of times, the young girls were forced into temple prostitution. So yeah, I think I'm pretty sure if any atheist showed up in the ancient times um, and saw what the Canaanites were doing, they would gladly pick up a sword and go alongside Israel with this one. I mean, you're talking about infants that were being sacrificed. You're talking about women that were being forced into prostitution, sexual slavery. Uh, that was basically, I mean, Gene Botero talks about this too in his, some of his books. Uh, that, you know, basically if a woman messed up uh, somehow in her, you know, just even little things, she would, and she'd have to run away from home. Yeah, she basically had to become a prostitute. There was nothing else really out there for her. Uh, so it wasn't really a good, we're not talking about a good culture. So, for example, John Gray talks about you know the the el cult of the phoenicians and in the, a lot of the canaanites he says we may well suppose that the activity of el was sacramentally experienced by the community in the sexual orgies of the fertility cult which the hebrew prophet so vehemently denounced so el committed some sort of incestual acts in there their version of el 
yeah. and did all these horrible things. And they would reenact a lot of these ceremonies. It was absolutely disgusting. Uh, UCLA researcher Shelby Brown concludes that no other ancient people, however regularly, chose their own children as sacrificial victims or equated them with animals which could sometimes be substituted for them. Uh, we're not talking about really good people here. These are people that were committing incest, bestiality, child sacrifice, uh, forcing women into these abhorrent lifestyles. It, you know, you know, a woman for them, again, was someone that was hit puberty. So, you know, they were not just saying, oh, she's 18, we can do anything we want now. They started a little earlier. So I think if any atheist would go back in time and find themselves at Joshua's conquest, they'd be like, yeah, let's get a sword and help him because these were not good people. Yeah. So would you say that when the Old Testament specifically, ha you know, has God commanding Israel to, quote, wipe out every man, woman and child, that even that narrative that describes God saying that was exaggerating? Yeah, absolutely. It was exaggeration. That's very much fits in with the cultural context, the way uh, people talked. And God is going to talk to people. He's going to talk to them in the language that's familiar to them. You know, he's not going to just talk in absolute literal language all the time. He's communicating to people. He's going to communicate in a way that's relatable to them. So, yeah, he's using that exact same language and that same understanding. And actually, Paul Copen has gone through the Pentateuch and note more than more than that, the command to drive them out of the land is said more often. And the mm -hmm. commands about, you know, wiping them all out is seen kind of like as sort of like an extension of that. So it should be understood with like it's an idiomatic way of saying drive them out of the land. And that's what God commanded them to do, is drive them out of the land, get rid of them. I want them out of Canaan. Well, they failed, you know, and so they, even in that, they couldn't even do it right. Yeah, I've been wanting so, to read Paul's book for a while, um, I, I, especially as God, a moral monster. I've seen that book, and now that I got Boyd's approach, I, I should, you know, give Paul a shot there. So, yeah, thanks for the recommendation. So what you're trying to say is that we can't just take our King James and just— read it and <laughs> you know where i'm going with this yeah i'm so sorry you had to endure that man i listened to that like the next day and i was just like poor mike <laughs> oh debate you had with g-man yeah wait you debated a king james <laughs> only person or uh g-man really... yeah we were debating you were on the, the age of the patriarchs oh, okay gotcha very, very interesting thanks yeah yeah that was a lot of stuff i wanted to get out there yeah yeah so sort of, tra sort of transitioning here, I, I wanted to ask you um, a, a question about bias. And this, this became sort of a big deal to me when I first read uh, Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind. And in that book, he makes the case that most of us evolved to form our beliefs intuitively and then to simply use rationale to justify our intuition. And it, mm -hmm. it, that's the whole case of the book, and, and he has a lot of evidence for that. And as I read this book, I thought, you know, this is, this is not only my experience of, of how I find people to be <laughs> making their arguments, but it, it all, he also has a lot of good evidence for it. So this kind of put me on a little bit of a tailspin because I was thinking, you know, why do I think, if, if this is the evidence, and most people f form their beliefs this way, why do I think I'm the grand exception? I'm the one who uh, managed to get past my bias and get past my social and environmental conditioning and was able to look at the facts 
objectively and, and come to an objective truth. Why, why do people like William Lane Craig and Sam Harris disagree? I mean, these guys are both way, way smarter than me. And shouldn't, shouldn't simply the smartest people agree and then the dumber people disagree with them if it, if it just came down to objective you know, rationale? Or is there something a lot more powerful going on here? Is there biases? Is there like emotional reasons for believing it? And how do I, how do I know I'm not the one with those biases? And, and so I don't, I don't know if that is a really good way to frame the question. It's just sort of a conundrum that I, I find myself in. How, how would you respond to something like that? Well, the first thing I would remind you is that we're all in the same boat. So Sam Harris, William Lane Craig, we're, everyone is in there. This idea that you know there are some really smart, objective people just doesn't exist. Very smart people believe strange things sometimes. It's just the way it is, and that's because we're not robots. You just can't input the right data and get the right result. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Our emotions do play in it. So the first thing we have to do is we have to accept that. So when Aaron Raw gets up there and tells me, you know, oh, if he gets up there and he says, well, if you just give me new evidence, I'll just change my mind. I'm like, no, you won't. That is The fact that you say that shows me you're not being honest with yourself and your own biases. You have to admit you have the problem first. <laughs> that's, the first that's the first stage of recovery. you got to admit you're part of the problem. He won't do that. And it drives me up a wall when I see Christians doing that too. Because no, you're not. you got to be honest with yourself. So we have to admit that, first of all, that, yeah, we do have biases that play into this. The next thing we can do is we make a logical case for our beliefs, what we think is true. And then we have to submit it to public discourse. We just can't sit on the side and say, well, I believe this, but I don't want to talk about it. You have to put it out there, and you should seriously consider the objections. You should read them. And there is a good way to judge these types of things. You know, Does your explanation – you know, it's theism – does it have explanatory scope? Does it have explanatory power? Is it the least ad hoc, or you know, or is it? Can, will it be shaved off by Occam's razor because you're making all these extra assumptions? Um, is it plausible? Can you are you explaining a lot of different areas with one, you know, with one theory? And you know, is it providing illumination in other ways? If you can pass these tests, that's a good way to evaluate it. That's a good way to look at it. I use Occam's razor and parsimony a lot in my belief forming because I can't judge the quality of beliefs. That doesn't, that doesn't exist because quality of something is, can be subjective a lot of ways. But we can't judge quantity because mathematics can't lie. So I can look at and say, well, my assumption or my belief may add one assumption, whereas yours is adding five. So I'm going to say with mine because I'm shaving yours off by Occam's razor. So those are tools to help. We will never be perfect at this individually. Uh, it just is the way it is. Uh, I may say I may accept, for example, a belief that's uh, that's ad hoc in one area, but that's because I think my overall worldview is le is less ad hoc in that way. And then I think that maybe this one belief I might have is ad hoc in this one way, but in like six other ways, it's the least ad hoc per, per se. Just you know, just to kind of give you like an analogy yeah. there. So it's it's a collective kind of thing. You look at it from a lot of different perspectives, and you take time and you seriously consider that you might be wrong. That's hard for people to do. It activates the reptilian parts of our brains, and we don't want to accept that. But that's what we have to do. You know, if, if I'm debating with someone, especially someone I'm close to, I will study their evidence. I'll read studies if they send them to me, and I'll really evaluate it to see if I could be wrong. And sometimes you just got to humble yourself and accept that you might be wrong. It takes a while to get there, but it, you got you got to work at it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever have doubt? Like, do you ever lay in bed at night and think, 
maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And it, you know the re- and it happens. Jeremiah seventeen nine says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so when I have that doubt, I, I go back through my arguments and my evidence, and I really try to evaluate and study it in that kind of way. Would Would you agree with William Lane Craig in, in that um, you know we can't necessarily be absolutely certain that it's true, but we simply believe it because it's the most plausible explanation. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's the most. It has it has the most explanatory scope, the most explanatory power. It's the least ad hoc, and it is the most plausible. And so that's the argument I make. I mean, I've seen even Bart Ehrman has even admitted in debates that the resurrection hypothesis has better explanatory scope and better explanatory power. He just thinks it's more ad hoc, and yeah. he thinks that it's not plausible. Um, and those are easily answered because at you know at something is ad hoc based on the quantity, and he judges that based on quality. And that's one of the main problems with I have with his arguments is he says you know the resurrection is the least probable because you know it's a miracle, and I'm like well that's you're, you're judging miracles based on quality. You're not judging me, the ar- the argument as the overall based on quantity, and so that's one of the issues I bring up a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's good, David. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, you know, it's funny because you mentioned Aaron Ra. I listened to that debate; that was pretty good. Um, but he, I was, you know, I'm wondering like, how do you sit there and just like take somebody just like basically? telling you they're going to change their mind and then won't even accept that they got the term faith wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Like he's trying to tell you what you believe, you know, and, and what other Christians believe. And no matter how many times you explain it to him, it just, it doesn't get through. And it's like, you you can see there's a volition volition there, but, but how do you stomach it when you're in these debates and you just, you just keep hitting that brick wall. Like for example, G man as well. I mean, you could have get a word in edgewise before, where he would just jump back all over you. I mean, well, with both of them, you yeah. just let them show the audience yeah. what they are. And so, Arn Raw is going to, you know, define faith how he wants. And you know, yeah. the charitable atheists, atheists that contacted me after people like Adam Friended, uh, Chris Hansen. You know, we're basically well, he's not an atheist anymore, so take back the second one. Uh, but basically, you know, they said, you know, like you know, that was just completely uncharitable. It was ridiculous to watch. Uh, you know, and you let them become the what they what they're showing the audience they are. You don't let them get to you. You just sit back and you let them become that, and they yeah. will show the audience what really is going on. And I let them do it half the time. Like I debated Tom Jump, I you know I let him just okay. run his show, and it came out really well in my favor. And I just let it happen. Yeah, yeah. I, heard, I was listening to that one today too uh, on my way home from work. Um, I didn't know you did one with Tom Jump, though. That, that took me a while to find. But, uh, yeah, well, I'm wrong because the physics says I'm wrong. So I'm wrong. I'm yeah. wrong. I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's good stuff, man. Um, Titus, I mean, I, I'm, I, I pretty much watch a lot of uh, Mike's videos here. So, I mean, if you have anything else for him. Yeah, I think, I think that basically covered it. We, I guess kind of in closing here, why don't we discuss the, the – question of why god seems hidden and i've heard this phrased in in this way you know if if god didn't exist we'd basically be experiencing what we're experiencing now right and and do you do you accept that statement or how do you kind of why do you think god doesn't just write his name in the stars well i think it would not get the results he wanted so let me ask both of you a question if we found out today that i don't know like allah 
exists. Who's going to get down and worship him? <laughs> or what if we found out Zeus exactly. exists? Like he actually lived on Mount Olympus. Like, like let's say he went on a very long journey across the universe and came back and he's like, what the hell happened? I had temples here. What happened? We'd all be like, well, wait a minute. Who are you? No, no one is going to like love Zeus, want to have a relationship with him, want to spend eternity getting to know him. You're not going to get the results like that. So what does God really want? Does he want people to know he exists? Or does he want meaningful built relationships? So philosophers know the difference between the idea of basic theism, just propositional knowledge God exists, versus cognitively robust theism. This is where you say God is my Lord. I want to love him. I know him. I want to get to better know him. So the question is, is how is an omnipotent, all-powerful being beyond our understanding going to get that kind of thing at humans? Well, it's obviously going to have to use free will. Uh, it's going to be a little bit more complicated than that. And so this is why I believe he reveals him to us. He reveals himself to us subtly. Uh, so, for example, uh, you know, uh, Paul Moser in his book Divine Hiddenness says many, you know, he, where did it happen to my quote? I just lost it. Okay, well, anyway, he talks about in this book basically the idea that God wants this cognitively robust theism. He doesn't want people to just know he exists. He doesn't want people to use him for self-serving means. You know, if, you have, if an omnipotent being shows up, we're going to worship him out of fear or because we have selfish desires. You know, we think we can get something from this being, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to take a little bit of work for God to sort of work through us and get the type of things that he wants. So, you know, this is why Jesus says in John 14, you know, if you love me, uh, it, who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself in him. So God wants us to, you know, humble ourselves, come to know him on a, a loving humility basis instead of just a shock and awe type basis. And so I have a whole video up called Divine Hiddenness, a Christian response, and I cover it more in detail there. Cool. Yeah, I was going to re say refer to the video. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But um, so, I mean, I got I got I was tr I'm trying to think I had like one question. Uh, yeah. How I mean, how's the uh, debate process for you? I mean, how? How do you prepare? I mean, because uh, you are like, I mean, quote after quote after quote, and you're just like, <laughs> you're like one of the most prepared debaters I, I've ever listened to. Well, thank you. Um, notice, like, in my R and Raw debate, I had my computer up in front of me uh, yeah. because I don't remember everything. I write down stuff. I write down notes and quotes and sources, and I highlight, you know, PDF documents or books, and and, I, and I'll, I'll make them, you know. So, like, when I debated Godless Engineer, I had like this giant, like text file of everything just so I could refer to it easily, you know, because this is like my computer is my other half of my, it's my third half of my brain. I have to use it so that I can remember the information in front of me. So I do that. I make slides. Um, I think uh, I watch a lot of what my opponent puts out there if it's available. So I won't just, you know, go into it blind. I want to know what they believe, well, how they think, how they debate, what they know thus far. And so I have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen going in. I mean, I did that with G-Man. I did that with RN. I did that with Ken Hoven. You know, I watch a lot of their stuff just so I know what I'm going to be prepared for. And if I can, I just know the information as well as I possibly can, and I have it on my computer so that if I need it, it's there. Yes. So, like, how do you have time for all this, man? <laughs> I mean, I only work part-time, but I mean, like... Okay. You know, I... You know, I, I I make time. If you really, yeah. if you really want to do this, you'll make time to do it. You know, it's yeah. Find the time. It's I. You know, for a while I was getting up at five a.m. to do stuff. Yeah. Um, that kind of stuff. You know, it's sometimes you just you'll find a way if you really want to do it. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I used uh, I still work security. Um, I do federal stuff, uh, and you know I'm always listening to podcasts there and and listening to debates and stuff like that. Yeah. So I hear you there. But yeah, Titus. Cool, Michael. Thanks so much for coming on. Hopefully, sometime we can come have you come on and engage in atheists. I think that'd be a lot of fun sometime in the future. Yeah, just I need about a, I I schedule debates maybe like one a month because I think yeah. I do take a long time to prepare for them. So I don't just do them willy nilly. I try yeah. to prepare for them. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I, I've been in touch. Have Have you heard of Chris Date and his um, idea of uh, the conditional immortality or annihilationist view of hell? No. Okay. Yeah, I've been in touch. I, I saw you did a video on hell, and I, I've been in touch with him trying to find someone who will defend, um, like, the eternal conscious torment view or the I eternal. I wouldn't really defend that. I'm Because I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm probably more of an eventual annihilationist. So okay. I don't know if it's eternal, but I do think that there are people there for a long time, and they, they slowly annihilate themselves out of existence. That's kind of what I was trying to imply in the video a lot. Gotcha. Okay. All right. We'll have to find someone else for that. But yeah, hopefully we can have you on with an atheist. I know that's your sweet spot. So, hey, thanks a lot for coming on and thanks for your time, man. Appreciate it. Yeah. Just one more thing, Mike. Uh, Just let everybody know where they can find you and and stuff like that if they because, I mean, this is this has been great and it's going to be great for our audience. So if you just let people know. Yeah, you can find me on expiringphilosophy.org is my website. YouTube.com slash inspiring philosophy, Facebook.com slash inspiring philosophy. Uh, best ways to get in touch with me. I can't respond to every message, just keep that in mind. So I, I don't use me as Google. Sometimes people think they can just ask me and keep asking me and just use me as Google. Try to do your own research <laughs> before you ask me something. I don't have time to respond to everybody. <laughs> Absolutely. And you have a Patreon, right? Yeah, Patreon.com slash inspiring philosophy. Okay. Probably about 190 away from going full time right now. So if I get another awesome. about 190 a month, I could go full time. You can do that, Sweet. David. I Sweet think deal. I got your pledge. <laughs> got my pledge. <laughs> right on, right on. I probably could do some, but I don't know if I could do that. Not, not until I get this AC fixed, at least. There you go. <laughs> right All on. right, well, we will right, wrap man. it Thanks, up. Thanks, Mike. Yep. Thank you. See you next oh, yeah. time. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bye. absolutely. All right.